Amen. Hey guys, well thanks for that. Um, thanks for praying along and uh, joining in with that. Um, well, I am, um, I am convinced of a couple things. One, as I try to transition, is that, that our world, our, the, chaotic, the chaotic world that we're in, is not the only time that our world has been this chaotic. Um, in this series we're in called Endure, um, we're going back in time to a time when the church underwent more persecution, I would argue, than what we're even seeing right now. The challenge is what does the church look like that can endure that and that can make it through. And so I want to invite you on a journey as I do every time we go into the, the text of Scripture back in time with me to see what was going on back back then when it was written and see what we can learn for ourselves as we grow together. So here's one of the things that I've come to learn over time, and I forget who said this, so maybe you can help me if you know, but someone once said that we all make decisions, and I'm going to butcher the, the way it goes, but basically that every decision we make is with our own happiness in mind all the time. <clears throat> That's a very universal statement, meaning that you can't make a decision and not have it be geared for or motivated by the fact that you will want to be happier after you've made the decision than you are before it. Now, I tend to push back on universals like that, so I think, haha, I'll show you, buddy, whoever this person is. Um, I'm going to make a decision that will make me unhappy. And then, of course, if I do that, how will I feel? Happy that I proved that proposition wrong, to which then I feel stuck in a logical cycle that I'm like, this guy may be onto something. It is very possible that actually every decision we make is in line with our own happiness. Even the things that we think might make us temporarily unhappy might make us even more deeply happy. And I also tend to think it's true in this way, taking that principle, that every decision we tend to make is for our own, I'm going to use this word, this business term, for our own profit. Now, that sounds really selfish, meaning when I wake up, most of the decisions I make will try to advance me further into a good way. I, I tend to make decisions based on what is most profitable for me. Let me put that in real terms. Yesterday, we had this, we have the dog at home, not just yesterday, I think today we still have a dog at home. Our dog decided that the most profitable thing for her to do in the moment was going to be to run through her underground electric fence. Like, she's been really, really good at staying within it, but we were doing some activity just about 10 feet beyond it, and she couldn't control herself, and it was worth it to her to get a little bit of, not a zap, but a correction through that electric fence, all right? So she decided to do that. That seemed like the most profitable thing in the moment for her. And then when she came across that, now she's in the great unknown. She can go anywhere to which we're like, we finally get her back. And we decide the most profitable thing is to put her back in her pen so she's in closing and kind of get this calm under control. Then I decide, and ironically, I'm also deciding we're going to build a little real fence area to keep her so she doesn't tear up the whole yard. And I decided the most profitable thing for me to do would be when I would be to go buy the materials for the fence and install it myself. Now, having started the installation process, now I'm questioning whether I made the decision that is the most profitable for me because I'm like getting, digging down into a rocky kind of soil is not a lot of fun for someone like me who doesn't do this all the time. But every decision that we make can be run through the grid of, well, actually, yeah, I'm trying to make this for my own profit, even though I don't always, in fact, ever, talk about it that way. Now, here, here's where I'm going with that. Stay with me for a minute. We generally believe that the more profitable things we do, the better our life becomes. If you wake up on time and you're disciplined, things will go well. If you sleep in all the time and have no plan for your life, things go poorly. The problem is, the problem is, we can't always tell what's most profitable, right? For example, should you break up with her? 
or give it one more try? That could be hard to know, right? Should we discipline our kid or should we pull them closer to our lap and give them a hug and talk them through this, which is the most profitable thing for them or for you? Should you hire another employee or should you let this one go? Hard to know. Should you sell part of the business or should you double down and invest further? Sometimes it's really, really hard to know what's most profitable. Should you have a hard conversation with someone you're trying to talk to or not? That can be hard to know what's most profitable to do. What do you say? What do you say when she asks you, do I look fat in that dress? Hard to know what is the most profitable thing to do. Now, here's where I'm going with this. That this is important. This idea of making decisions that are profitable is super important in the development of the early church. The earliest church had a bunch of decisions to make. Now, keep this in mind. If the early church fails, if they make a series of poor judgment calls, if they make a series of decisions that are unprofitable, and the business goes down, the relationship goes down, or in this case, the church goes down, there is no church on the other side of the world to come save it. There is no church in Pennsylvania who will pray for the churches in Poland because there are no churches on the other side of the world. And so what's at stake for the early church is if you don't make profitable decisions that can move this thing forward, you are at risk of the whole thing never getting traction and never getting off the ground. It's incredibly important to make decisions that are, I would argue, profitable or beneficial for the advancement of the church. Which is why I think Paul writes what he does right now. He is in prison. This guy who's writing the letter that we're writing, I think he's well aware of what's at stake. Well aware that if things don't go well, we're at risk of losing it all. And there's no one who's going to come in and, and save us. And so what he writes to the early church is a matter of, let me give you something that will help you make, and I would say, profitable decisions. Even though we don't always talk that way, we actually function that way. And here's what I want to say. I want to take you to the text, and you can decide what you think about it. Here's what I think. That here's what he's writing to them, and here's my point. That God inspired ancient writings to profit your life and faith. Now, that's a handful. That's a mouthful. If you can help me say that in a better way, please tell me, and I'll re-preach this thing later on. But here's the big deal. What Paul, I think, is saying is this, is that God actually, and he's given this to Timothy, that God actually inspired ancient writings to profit you, to profit you, church, your life and your faith. I want to take you to, to where he's writing to help you see that for yourself. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the little letter of 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we are um, in verses 16 and 17, some very popular verses. And again, just a reminder, Paul writing, sitting in a dungeon, kind of a big cave carved out in the ground, writing on his essentially his deathbed, realizing that he's going to be executed soon by the state, writing to Timothy about what could happen next. So here's what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, only two verses this morning. I'm going to read them. And we're going to make some commentary about them, all right? He says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if you're a church person, 
this is a verse, set of verses that are probably pretty familiar to you. And, and it's very familiar to me too. If you have background in the church, this is about um, the, the passage that basically tells you, you know what, here's the value of the scriptures, the authority of them, the what we call inerrancy, the inspiration. We here at Grace Point affirm the infallibility of scriptures. I mean, these things are what we reverence and value the strength of the scriptures. And these two verses are some of the foundational verses that we use to highlight and raise up the power, we think the strength and value of the scriptures. I will also say this, that I think when Timothy was writing in a dungeon about to die, I don't think he was thinking, what verses can I write that would give a future church good foundation for their theology? When you're dying, life becomes incredibly practical, doesn't it? You don't talk about theory anymore. You realize, you know what, we don't have time to mess around with theory. Let's talk practice. What will work for you? What will work? And what do you need to focus on? Intensely practical. And so I want to look at these verses, not in light of theology, not in light of what it teaches us and what we have seen from it, but I want to go back in history to the moment of what it may have meant historically in that moment. Okay, so that's my lens, and I'll walk through it that way, and we'll see what conclusions we come to. So let's go through it. I'm going to go through this kind of phrase by phrase. So back to the beginning, he says, all Scripture, all Scripture, he starts with that. Now, just to be clear, there's at least five books of what we have in our New Testament that haven't even been written yet when Paul writes this. And so what we have in our, like, real paper Bibles is a collection of Old Testament and New Testament. If you're in a Catholic church, you may have what they call the Apocrypha as well added on to that, a section of writings that some regard as Scripture and some do not. If you're in a Protestant church, the Protestants, like us, do not. If you're in a Catholic church, generally, they do. And so when he writes all Scripture, what does he mean? Well, he can't mean all of our New Testament yet because we don't have it all yet. He's not, in fact, he's not even finished writing the letter yet of 2 Timothy. He's only on chapter 3. We've got to get to at least chapter 4. So what does he mean? Even though, even though there's an early, the early church begins to understand some of these early writings as Scripture, and Peter talks about some of Paul's writings using the word Scripture, what I believe is in mind is Paul is looking back to the Old Testament saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have this Old Testament ancient writings, these things, all of Scripture, and that's what he has right now, all of Scripture, he says, is God-breathed. God-breathed. What does that mean? It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's, it's, my best illustration for it is, um, imagine going boating, which all of us do weekly. Okay, imagination's here. We're going boating, we have a sail on our little boat, Again, all of us do this. You put the sail up, and it catches the wind, and that is what allows the boat to go in the direction you want. And if you're good at boating, evidently, because I've never done this, you can actually control the wind, manage that, and move your little boat where you like it to go. The ship, the, the sail, in a way, is the author of the scriptures. The wind that fills the sails is the picture of God breathing and giving direction to the author of the scriptures. It's not as if God dictated to the author's Here's what thou shalt write. Use this pronoun and this adjective and this verb tense. And No, it wasn't dictation. It was a, you are here, your sail is up. I'm going to inspire you. I'm going to breathe into you 
the momentum, the energy, the direction for where this boat will go. That's how I understand this idea of inspiration, an inspired act of God to inspire these scriptures that we have. All scriptures God breathed and is, are useful, he says. Now, in the NIV, it says useful, but this is why I'm talking about profit. The word actually means profit. It means profit. It means beneficial. And so if you're, this is a business term. It means that if you're going to run a business, you want it to be profitable. And I would argue if you're going to run a church, if you're going to run your own faith life, if you're going to move, you want to be profitable. You want to make profitable decisions. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, all of Scripture, and in his case, all that he had at that point was the Old Testament that I think is primarily in his mind. Pretty quickly, New Testament writings became known as Scripture as well. So we have the Bible. All of, all of Scripture is breathed by God and is profitable. The reason I'm pushing on profitable is because I want us to read the next four characteristics through the lens of profitability. He says it's, it's profitable, and he says for four things. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It does four things, and it will profit you. It will benefit you. It will make you better in each of these areas of your life and in each of these areas of the church's life. Now, look at the first one, for teaching. So, all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful or profitable for teaching, he says. So, we're just going to pause on each one of these. Teaching centers us on truth. I just want to make a couple comments and move forward on each of these real quick. Teaching centers us on truth. That's so important. You, you and I know we're living in a misinformation age all over the place. It's happening internationally. It happens domestically. Anytime people are struggling for power, the information war is huge to wage and win. Teaching, he says, the scriptures are useful for teaching because Timothy is going to face a kind of persecution in which he's going to be challenged with how are you going to make sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now, I want to put this verse in some context for you for a minute. So I'd like the people in the back, if you don't mind reading this line for me. All right, so what this is, is this is the, the verses that we just read. All scripture is God breathes and is useful. You trust me on that. If you can't, don't trust me, just come forward, and I don't mind if you come sneak, sneak a peek. All right, so you can't read it. That's okay. That's not important. Just this is where it is. I want to put it in context because, again, Paul is writing. He's not writing with verses. He's in a prison. He's in a dungeon. He has a little light on the top. Here's the context. Here's the rest of what he was writing. We have paragraph breaks, sentence breaks. Um, you know, we have numbers in here for verses. Paul wasn't writing any of that. He's just writing. And so that verse is somewhere near the bottom of that. Now, in the context of what's going on, of what he's writing, Paul is talking about something over and over and over and over. And in six times, actually, he mentions one thing in this verse, in this, just in this section of what he's writing, of which our verses are key, kind of right in the middle of it. I put them in red and bold. Can you see them? How about now? Over and over and over and over and over and over again, what Paul is writing about is this issue of truth. And I haven't even highlighted where he talks about people deceiving other people or he talks about those who are, are, are lying, those who are going into homes and manipulating people. He is talking about over and over and over again a world in which what is at stake is the truth. Not just a good idea or a bad idea, but actually objectively truth. And what is going to be first and foremost is do I know what is true and how do I get to it? In the middle of truth, he puts these verses. He says all scripture is profitable. Starts with for teaching. Because teaching will help you and help me clarify what is true from what is false. From where? All Scripture. From coming back to as a faith community and being anchored to Scripture. And so this is where he starts. All Scripture is 
profitable for teaching and for understanding what is true in the middle of a world that is false. Okay? And then he goes on, the second thing, for teaching, for also rebuking. This one is hard. I don't know when the last time is you've gone to Scripture and been like, um, I cannot wait to get rebuked on this Monday morning. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I go to Scripture to read, I'm often, if not, if not exclusively, looking for encouragement. Maybe sometimes just looking for wisdom. But what Paul says, this will, and this is why I'm, I'm pushing on the word profit, this will make you better. You will profit if you are willing to be rebuked by the Scriptures. <laughs> That's odd, right? That is not normal. Uh, the old story is told, some of you may have heard it, it's a, anyway, a fable of a kid um, who is at home with his mom. His mom makes a new uh, batch of strawberry jelly, which he loves, and his mom knows he loves it, but he can't have it because it's not the right time, and so she puts it up on a shelf where he can't reach it. She goes out of the room, maybe outside to do something, and she comes back in about 30 minutes later, and, and she looks at him, and she asks him the question, hey, Jimmy, did you get into the jelly? To which he looks at her in the eyes and is like, no. She pauses, asks him again, Jimmy, did you get into the jelly? He realizes what he's done. He kind of drops his gaze a little bit lower to about her waist, and he's like, no. One more time, Jimmy, did you get into the jelly? Drops his gaze a little bit further now, looking at her feet, no. One last time, Jimmy, did you get into the jelly? He drops his eyes so far down that he can now see on his shirt a red jelly stain right here, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I did because this is the point of rebuke, isn't it? It often takes multiple times for me to be confronted by truth before I'm willing to admit it. You ever been there? You read something or you hear something, listen to a podcast, a message or whatever, you're like, that'd be awesome for a mother-in-law to hear that. No offense if you're in here anywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, that'd be great if my roommate could hear that one. But it's hard to come down and look at the jelly stand on my own shirt and be like, shoot, like I needed to hear that. I needed to be rebuked in that space because it takes me a while to come off of my assumption that I'm usually right. So to come to the scriptures and be willing to be profited by rebuke assumes that I'm humble enough to come under its authority. That is incredibly difficult. But Paul's saying, Timothy, this is going to profit you to be rebuked. And then to be corrected is the third thing. To be corrected, that's that little adjustment of here's where you're off. Let me correct you this way. This is the positive of the negative. This is what's wrong. Let me correct you this way. And then training in righteousness. It's a simple idea. Boy, a long time ago, I think, I don't know much about these, so forgive me. Um, I've heard that there are some schools for um, girls called finishing schools. You ever hear of those? that have to do with teaching manners, to sit like a lady and drink tea like a lady, of which I know nothing about. Those schools were simply meant to pass on training in a particular ethic or manner. This word that Paul uses is similar to that. Don't think finishing school, but think of what they were trying to do, to train people to act in a particular ethical way. In our homes, when we raise kids, and you probably do this too, before your kid can just take the food, you train them to say, please, and then thank you. It's a finishing school of sorts for parents. That is a training in ethics, in righteousness. And what Paul is saying about the scriptures is this will profit your ethics and your morality. That you will be shaped, this will profit you, you'll be shaped by the kingdom of God. 
You will be shaped by thinking very differently about how the world works. You will be finished into a product of a person whose ethic and morality will be aligned with the kingdom. A people who love God and love others first. The scriptures will profit you in that way, that we can be people who share in those ethics and morality. And so he says, all scriptures God breathed for these things, and then he goes on, so that, so that, he said, the servant of God, he finishes this in verse 17. The purpose is, again, he's intensely practical. This is not theory. This isn't just about writing for a future doctrinal position paper. He's like, so that the servant of God, the one who wants to serve him, may be thoroughly equipped. That twin idea of thoroughly equipped, think of a, um, think of a lawyer who passes their bar exam. Um, think of a um, teacher who passes their teacher's certification. They get their certificate. They get someone else to credential them. They are thoroughly equipped. And that's what he's saying. The scriptures will give you that certification, if you will. They will help you become equipped. For what? For he says, for every good work. That is the most general way of saying basically this. Everything that you run into in your life is going to require you to engage with people, to offer a touch of God, to cause you to think about your own faith and experience, whether it's cleaning the floors, changing a diaper, talking with your spouse, dating somebody, thinking about your financial future, leading your business. Whatever it is, is going to require every good work that you do. You'll have your hand on it here, your hand on it there, your hand on it there. If you want God to work in you in all of the normal and extraordinary things that you do, he's like, stay grounded to what will profit you the most. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful or profitable, Timothy, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God can be certified for all that's going to come your way, for everything that you do. Now, you, many of you know, if you've listened to me before, I like to finish with a so what and what do, I do with, what do I do with this? Before I answer the so what or what do I do with this, let me answer a different question, that is what do I don't do with this? Okay, how about that one? What do I don't do with this? And here, here's, there's probably a better way to, to put that, so forgive me. Again, please go back in time to when Timothy was hearing this and, and reading this. Let me, let, me ask, let me put it this way. This is what Timothy can't do with this. What Timothy can't do with this is what most of us will primarily do with this. Our first reaction, if you're a church person, is going to be to do something or to think about doing something that Timothy and the original audience simply could not do. And when that happens to me, I tend to look and say, let me make sure that I understand the context and what was even possible for Timothy to do. In our Western world, with the advent of the printing press, what has become available to us is printed scriptures in our own language, of course, now at this point, in our language at least, and also printed scriptures that I can have personal copies of. That combined with what is generally an individualistic value in the West has laid on top of this verse a guilt or a shame that most people aren't on their own in private reading their own personal copies of the scriptures, which some have called over time devotions. For many of us, our first instinct is to say, well then, here's the point of the message. 
I need to read my personal copy of my Bible more consistently. Thank you for reminding me about that. Good time. Now, let me ask you this. Could Timothy have done that in this original hearing? And I would say, no, it's impossible. Because personal copies of the scriptures did not exist yet. I'm not against reading the personal copies of your scriptures. In fact, I would encourage it. I do that. I would encourage it. But that's not what Timothy even could have done. So the application of that in this context is different. And this is why I set that up to put it this way. Here's where I think Paul had to go and where the early church had to go with this. And I have this last question, and then I'm going to wrap it up. And I'm going to ask the question, and then I'm going to explain why I think that this question is more helpful than maybe are, am I reading my personal copy in my own private space enough? Here's the question, and that is this. Are there people in our lives who help us be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained by the Scriptures? Are there people in our lives who help us be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained by the Scriptures? Here's my assumption, that the early church grew in community together. They grew in relationship with one another. They shared whatever versions of the scriptures they had the ability to recall. It was an oral tradition. And the value of being together as people kept them as people anchored to the scriptures, to what would be profitable for them. And so my point here is simply asking the question for us as a church now. Are there people? You have people. Do you have people, not just am I personally, but I'm talking about do I have people who, as I'm in relationship with them, what we share are times of conversation, of learning, of engaging, of talking about, praying through, applying, allowing the Scriptures to rebuke us, correct us, and train us, much like the early church had to do, because it was the only thing they could do. What is the quality of the relationships that I have with the people of faith around me? Because that, I think, is a more primary application for Timothy when Paul was writing, than for us in our Western context today. I still want to encourage you to read your own Bible that you have. Did I say that enough by now? But I also want to add to it maybe some historical perspective. That I think there will be something incredibly profitable for you. If you have people, not just a Bible, but if you have people who you engage with regularly. And as a part of those relationships, you don't just talk about the weather and sports and family and kids, but you also, as people of faith, let the scriptures sit among you and let them correct you, teach you, rebuke you, and train you together, much like the early church. That's where I think was the only possible application for the early, early church in a time that was incredibly, incredibly difficult. And so I want to encourage you this way. Let me get very practical here, too. Um, if you don't have people like that, I want to encourage you to join a grace group here at Grace Point. We started a couple of those this year already. I, I have found them to be incredibly helpful for people now. I mean, be careful. This isn't a sales pitch. This is an opportunity for you. That even sounds more like a sales pitch, doesn't it? <laughs> 
Forget it. Whatever way doesn't sound like a sales pitch to you, I get no financial benefit from you joining a grace group. All right, that does not profit me in any way. I don't know how else to say that. I, that, I back out of that one if I can. I just want for you to have people that share the value of scriptures together in your relationships where you can together encourage and profit and benefit one another. Sometimes that's not a grace group, totally, totally fine. Some of you meet with other business leaders or other family members and you have that a part of your life. If you do not, I really want to encourage you, not just enough to take your own personal copy of the scriptures and read it in your room by yourself. It's just not the way that the early church even formed. It wasn't even possible. There's a value and tremendous power in coming together with the people who walk in life with you and come back to the scriptures. Because this is, again, what I believe, and then I'm going to wrap it up. That God inspired ancient scriptures to profit your life and your faith. That you will be better. You'll be better at life. You'll better represent Christ in every good work that you do if you are around people who are engaging the scriptures with regularity with you and helping you teach, correct, rebuke, and train in righteousness. And I do mean it. I really want you to think about it. If you don't have people like that, I want to encourage you to join a grace group. I want to encourage you to put yourself out there to say, I, I need to do something, and I want to get into that space. The easiest way to do that is on our communication card at the end of this in a couple of minutes. You can just write grace group, or I'm interested in it. We can talk more about that. But I'm serious. Think about how are you going to do this? What would that look like for you? Because this is how the early church made profitable decisions and kept going. It's by leaning into the scriptures and letting it circulate right in the middle of their relationships. All right. Next week, we're going to finish it up. We're going to finish Endure, and then we'll be done Enduring next Sunday. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time this morning, for the chance to come together, to pray together, to be together as a people, and to, to uh, learn, to step back in history, step back in time, and see again the power of the scriptures, what Paul set out as kind of the foundation for where we can find truth, where we can be corrected, and, uh, and I pray for each of us in our own hearts. I pray for humility to be willing to come under regular teaching of the scriptures, regular engagement with the scriptures. I pray for us in relationships, that our relationships will um, include and deepen to include this, um, the scripture sitting in the middle of us, that we can learn and engage and talk and be sharpened by each other's rebukes and corrections encouragements and training, that we can be equipped for every good work, for all the stuff that's so chaotic that comes our way, things that we're not going to be prepared for, the moments where we don't have time to think about what we say, we just have to say it, the way we have to react and interact with people that can be so hard sometimes with having kids and being in business environments and being in school. It's hard to know what's coming. But I pray that the scriptures be a part of the anchor of our lives, that we can have people who will walk with us through that. So give us courage to step out on our relationships if we don't have that right now. That it can be profitable for our life, for our faith. It's in Jesus' name we